0: And we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We're looking at John chapter 13. If you have your copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to have it open there to John 13 and to be reading along with me. I noted last Sunday that uh, John's Gospel can be divided into two sections uh, the Book of Signs and then the Book of Glory. Chapters 1 through 11 are the Book of Signs. That's where John sets out those seven miracles. Culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus. And then the second half of the book is the book of glory. And it begins in the upper room. Where in just 18 short hours. 18 short hours Jesus is going to be crucified. I don't know if you knew that. From the moment he goes into the upper room. Till the moment he is nailed to the cross not a full day. Passes and Jesus knows that this is his hour. He has said that to his disciples. He knows what's about to come on him. And really everything from this point to the crucifixion are what we might say are the most important things that Jesus is really ever going to say. Um, John likes to give us things that the other gospel writers don't give us. He was there with Jesus. He was part of that apostolic inner band, one of the three closest companions of the Lord Jesus, and so he had a keen insight into the things that Jesus said and did. It was John Calvin who said, while the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, show us the body of Jesus, as it were, John shows us the soul of Jesus, and so this morning we're going to see Jesus showing us his soul, and we're looking at John chapter 13, and we're going to read down to verse 30. John thirteen, one through thirty. Now John writes, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And in the Greek, it's literally that you may believe that I am Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Jesus was telling him, by what, we need for the, by what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, a number of years ago, I was spending time with a friend, and I was asking him about his upbringing. And he proceeded to tell me that when he was 12 years old, his father had died and I asked him how his father died and he said my father was a very strong Christian he was a very simple man he said and he was at a get-together with other people and a man spilled something on his shoes and my father quickly grabbed a towel and he went down to wipe his shoe off and he had an aneurysm and it killed him and his last act was washing somebody else's feet and I thought wow I thought I had heard everything. Um, I've thought about that story many times since he told me that because we live in a society that is so selfish and self-driven. When we hear stories like that, it's astonishing to think that someone would take to themselves the task of doing something so menial as stooping down to wipe somebody else's feet. And yet, as Jesus enters in on his hour— and as he knows everything that's about to come upon him, and as he has already told his disciples that he is going to be lifted up and so draw sinners to himself, he takes his disciples into the upper room. He is there having the Passover meal with them. He is going to institute the Lord's Supper in that upper room. They are arguing about who's the greatest, Luke tells us, and after the supper is over, He is going to look over and realize that while they are arguing about who's the greatest, none of them have taken up the basin to do the least act of hospitality in Palestine. And so the Lord of Glory is going to go over, pick up the basin and the towel. He's going to stoop. He's going to take the lowest place. He's going to wash the filthy feet of the disciples, even the feet of Judas, who he knows is going to betray him. And in that way, he's going to act out a parable for his disciples. Now, many people have mistaken this account. There have been churches that advertise, we're going to have a foot-washing ceremony next Saturday. Um, we, we never find this ever again in the rest of the New Testament, which means one of two things, because Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I've done this, now you do as I have done. Either the disciples, the apostles, were disobedient or this had a symbolic meaning and it was pointing to his death and what he is calling them to do is to follow his example in caring for others, especially for his ministers to care for the spiritual needs of his people. Now I want us to look this morning as we consider this at three things. First, I want us to consider the motivation. What is motivating The Lord Jesus to do this. Secondly, I want us to consider the symbol. And then I want us to consider the example. And actually, I'm sorry, I have four things. And the betrayer. We've got to cover him too. The motivation, the symbol, the example, and the betrayer. Well, notice how John transitions now in the second half of the book. All the miracles are done. All of those miracles were meant to show us the glory of Jesus. Remember that first miracle in the changing of water to wine, John tells us, in this way, Jesus manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The point of all those miracles were a manifestation of the glory of Christ. Now, the second half of this book is going to be a further manifestation of his glory. And I'm going to argue this morning, and you have to listen very carefully. I'm going to argue this morning that what happens here in this chapter, next to the cross itself is arguably the greatest manifestation of the glory of Jesus in the scriptures. You want to see the glory of Christ. You look at him stooping and washing the feet of his disciples. Um, now, what is motivating him? Notice Jesus, uh, John tells us, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Notice this. Having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. What was motivating Jesus? It was the love that he had for his sinful disciples. These are not men that deserved his love. These are not men that had done anything to merit his love. They were not better than other people. They were not smarter than others. They were not more faithful than others. Remember, they are going to both deny him... And they are going to forsake him. These very disciples whose feet Jesus is going to wash are not deserving of his love. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle says, Knowing perfectly well that they were about to forsake him shamefully in a very few hours. I want you to think about that. Knowing very well that they were about to forsake him shamefully in a very few hours. In full view of their... Approaching display of weakness and infirmity, our blessed Master did not cease to have loving thoughts of his disciples. He was not weary of them, he loved them to the end. Ryle says, Those he receives, he always keeps. Those he loves at first, he loves at last. Isn't that a comfort? That is so pregnant, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. You know, the greatest need that you and I have in life is to know and to believe that Christ has loved us and does love us. Um, in fact, there, there was only one in the room who never came to a place of knowing that Christ loved him, and that was Judas. Um, John wants us to own this glimpse of Christ That he is the Christ that is so full of love. And when John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, he means he loved them all the way to the point of death on the cross. He would love them until he laid down his life for them. He would love them until he shed his blood for their and our sinful souls. You know, when a man or woman first comes to Christ, it's easy to know and believe the love that Christ has has for you. And I find in the Christian life it's much harder when we face our sin and our weaknesses and our failures, and we somehow come to a point thinking, maybe I have, maybe because of my weaknesses and infirmities and failures, he doesn't love me anymore. That's a very real experience. John is telling us that those, as Ryle says, that he receives, he always keeps. Those he loves at first, he loves at last. We'll notice John now tells us during the supper when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Notice verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, it was not just the love that Christ had for his disciples that motivated to do what he's going to do. It was the knowledge of his eternal dwelling with his Father And the knowledge that he was about to go back to his father by way of the cross and the resurrection that led him to do what he was going to do in a moment in that upper room. Um, John Calvin, when he is reflecting on this, says, you know, here in the upper room, there's this calm repose in the mind and the heart of Christ. He's just a man of 30. He's, He's relatively young. And he knows he's about to suffer greatly. We're going to see him agonize in the garden. That's going to have to happen. But here at this moment, when he is entering in on that work and in that hour, he is calm and composed. And Calvin says, you know why he is calm and composed? Because he knows where he came from and he knows where he's going. Um, There's a picture there of the glory of Christ. Here is the most courageous man who has ever lived. I I remarked on this point to my wife earlier and I said you don't see that in the world she said well you kind of do to some extent see it in young men going to war Um, here you have Christ going to war against Satan and sin and death and what's carrying him through is that he knows that he came from God and was going back to God well I want us to consider not just the motivation this morning I want us to consider the symbolism notice um, that that Jesus does this act, and John pays special attention to every part of this act. The first thing he says is that he rises, he then tells us he takes on, off his outer garment, he then tells us he takes the basin and the towel, he then tells us he stoops, washes their feet, and then he tells us he takes his place again. Now, um, I noted that the point of this um, is not that we would literally have foot-washing ceremonies. Um, the first and most important point is seen in the parallel between what happens here and what Paul says in Philippians two eleven five 5-11, where he says, about Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of sinful men, yet without sin, he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, and then he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, and God has highly exalted him again. He came from God, he stooped, he washed the sinful souls of his people, and he went back to God. You see what Jesus is doing? He's acting out what he's going to do on the cross. He is really also not just the most courageous man that's ever lived, Jesus is the most observant man that ever lived. Um, I I like to imagine that when Jesus went through this world, he took everything in and processed it so that he could illustrate spiritual truths with the most common thing, like washing feet. Now, keep in mind that Jesus has noticed the selfishness of the disciples. Um, They are there arguing about who's the greatest. And at the moment of one of their most Uh, sinful displays of weakness, he is going to give one of the greatest displays of his humility and his love and his service. It's absolutely remarkable. If you want to know what Christ is like, this is what you look at. This is what Jesus is like. You know, many people have wrong views of Christ. They either think of him as some sort of just miracle-working guru or they think about him as somebody who can make their life better, or if I have him on my side, it's good insurance, or any other number of views, superstitious views about Jesus, health, wealth, and prosperity, falsehood about Jesus. This is the picture of Jesus that God wants us to have, that chiefly he is not only king and lord, he is not only all-powerful, he is a servant of sinners like us. Jesus is chiefly a servant of sinners like us. Jonathan Edwards, um, reflecting on this, noted that um, Christ is really demonstrating for his disciples the essence of the gospel, the heart of the gospel. That heart is that what he does on the cross is for the washing of the souls of his people. He has come to wash souls that are filthy, like your soul and my soul. Um, Martin Luther, at one time reflecting on what Jesus does on the cross, said this, Christ became the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was or could be in the world. He carried the sin of Paul, who was a blasphemer, oppressor, and persecutor, of Peter, who's here in the room with him, who denied Christ, of David, who was an adulterer and murderer, That he might make satisfaction for them with his own blood. That's the whole point of what Jesus is doing. He wants you to know he has come to wash the filthy souls of men and women like you and me. Um, You know, I heard someone, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson, recently saying, I'd never thought about this. You know, what Jesus is doing here in the upper room is not first and foremost setting an example. He's going to say he is doing that. But he is first and foremost doing this to draw people to himself. And Ferguson said, essentially, you know, Jesus here kneels. He kneels at the filthy feet of his disciples so that we and a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language would kneel before him now exalted at the right hand of the Father. He kneels here so that you would kneel before him. Isn't that marvelous? This is what should motivate us. To worship the Lord Jesus. Um, He is acting out his death, and yet the disciples don't understand, right? There's that long interchange between now Jesus and Peter. And in the acting out of the symbol, Peter is resisting what Jesus is doing. And there's so much, so much instruction there for us because we are so often just like Peter. Peter doesn't yet fully understand what's going on. In fact, I would argue. None of the disciples really at this point really understand what Jesus is doing. And so they look at an act of service like taking a basin and a towel, a very common thing in which a servant would have come and, and washed the feet of those that were coming into the master's house. And, and they think this is below Jesus. They think it's below them. That's the real problem is that the disciples are so puffed up with pride and selfishness that they think this is below them. And, and you and I are every bit, like the disciples by nature. I was thinking this week, as I read this and prepared for this, you know, selfishness rises up when we think there is no selfishness in our hearts um, in how we speak to others and what we expect of others. Years ago, I wrote an article because I noticed a propensity in the church that, that one of the things that destroys churches and it seems so subtle, is not the big outburst, it's not the big explosions often as unrealistic expectations that members have of one another to serve them, and members have of ministers and elders to serve them, and unrealistic expectations that elders and officers may have of the people to do more, rather than everyone taking the basin and the towel. See, Peter thinks this is beneath him. The other disciples think it's beneath him. And that's fundamentally one of our greatest problems. But notice that Jesus is so patient and gentle. Peter, as he is having his feet washed, said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? This is beneath you. Now there's mixture here, isn't it? Because on one hand, when you think about Jesus, and, and you know that he's the eternal son of God, doing something like this, should seem like it's beneath him. If he is the infinite, glorious God over all. I mean, we sang this morning, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? There is something right in that, and yet, Peter thinks he's above being served. Isn't that interesting? Peter's selfishness and self-righteousness are kind of breaking through here. I'm, I'm too good for this. It's too good for you, but I... I don't even need this. I don't need to be served. And notice what Jesus says to him. What I'm doing now, you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him again, you will never wash my feet. Notice this, now he's arguing with the Lord. Um, You know, we may not have a verbal argument with the Lord, but whenever we buck against things he says to us in his word, we are doing exactly like Simon Peter. Jesus says, you may not understand what I'm doing right now, You're going to understand later. And Peter's like, you're never going to do this to me. Um, And notice how gently Jesus continues to deal with him. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I think this is almost the centerpiece of this chapter and this section. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus says that to every one of us this morning. If you will not be served by me, in my atoning death on the cross, you have no share in who I am and what I came to do. And, and, you know, whenever I hear Jesus say this, whenever I think about this verse, I cry out with that hymn writer, Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you're not crying out right now, Wash me, Savior, or I die, there's something horribly wrong. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, if you do not let yourself be washed by me, you have no part in me. Our great need in addition to knowing the love of Christ is to allow ourselves to be served by him Um, and that means going to him and saying Lord wash me, cleanse me cleanse my soul with your blood, that's what Jesus is saying to Peter, you need me to cleanse you Um, you know I've always marveled At the picture that we get of Jesus in scripture that he is servant par excellence and and you know it's not just here it's not just in what he does on the cross Luke gives us this account where Jesus says in in the consummation and glory that many are going to come from the north south east and west and they're going to sit down with Abraham Isaac and Jacob and Jesus says that he's going to come and he's going to serve his people in glory I can't even fathom what that's going to be like that Jesus never stops serving his people. The one who deserves to be served, the only one, none of us deserve to be served, not one of us. The only person that has ever existed who deserved to be served was Jesus. And yet he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, Peter, I think, is starting to understand a bit And yet, as Peter is so apt to do, he is stubborn. Notice verse 9, Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now he's telling Jesus what to do. So he's been telling Jesus what to do the whole time. You're never going to do this? No, you're never going to wash my feet? This will never happen. Now he's like, no, 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 not just my feet, wash all of me. Again, something commendable. And yet, here, Peter is showing both his ignorance and also a bit of his know it allness that he knows better than christ and he's going to tell the lord what to do and notice what jesus says to him the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean and you are clean yet not all of you now what is jesus saying to him he's saying i've already redeemed you you see peter was already forgiven What Jesus is going to do at the cross was already retrospectively applied and in effect to Peter and the other disciples, minus Judas, just like it was to David and Moses and Abraham and everybody who believed in the Old Covenant. Jesus had already justified them. He had already taken away the guilt of their sin. He had already washed them. And now he is saying, what you need is to be sanctified, and I think there is in what Jesus says here a lesson for us that we can often forget what has already happened to us and live as though it hasn't. Um, si- uh, Simon Peter will get this, very interesting, in his, in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter will tell <clears throat> Believers, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge godliness, all of these virtues. And then he says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I almost wonder if Peter's not reflecting on what Jesus said to him here in the upper room. It's very easy to forget what has already happened and we can live and act as though it hasn't. And Jesus is saying, look, remember, I've already washed you. I've already cleansed you. I've already justified you. And now I want to sanctify you. And in telling him you're already clean and he who's um, been washed only needs to wash his feet, he's also telling us that as believers we need the gospel every single day of our life to give that second cleansing, to continue to purify us and to cleanse us of those sins that so easily beset us. You see, Jesus is showing us that what he came to do, he came to do both for justification and for sanctification. Both to take away all our sins forever, and to accept us as righteous, and to continue cleansing us. Well, I want us to consider now thirdly the example. We've looked at the motivation, the symbolism, and now the example. Notice that, Jesus now transitions, and he asks them a question in verse 12. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, he wants them to understand the spiritual, uh, he wants them to understand the impact of what he's doing spiritually, and he wants them to think the greatest need that they have is for him to, to redeem them and wash them and cleanse them. And the greatest need that they are going to have is to care for the spiritual needs of one another and others. Uh, Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on this passage called Christ's Example to Ministers, in which he says Jesus is preeminently saying to the disciples as he prepares them to be the apostles and go out into the world, that the chief part of ministry is the proclamation of the gospel for the washing of souls, for the spiritual good of people, for the care of them. And and he's telling them, as they are going to be used singularly by him, that, that all of Christian ministry is taking the lowest spot in serving others, in pouring yourself out for the spiritual good of others. Now, I don't think this is just for ministers, so... If you're out there and you're like, just for ministers. This is a word for every Christian. Um, We are called to take the lowest place and to serve rather than to seek to be served. Um, I have heard Christians say to me, you know, things along the lines of, when is it my turn to be served? Um... I have seen many Christians act that out um, in the way that they complain about what they want, what the church doesn't have, what they wish they had. Jesus is saying, listen, follow my example in being together. And by the way, let me just say this as an aside, with no one in particular here in mind, you have to be present with one another to serve one another. You've got to be together with one another to serve one another. And then when we are together with one another, we have to put on the mind of Christ, as Paul says. And we need to esteem others better than ourselves. And we need to empty ourselves of what we want. And we want to think about how we can minister to the good of others. You know, if every Christian in this room, and every church, this starting with this church, and every Christian church appropriated this, what, what would the church look like to the world? Um, taking the mind of Christ, thinking lowly of ourselves, thinking how can I serve somebody else rather than how can I sit back and have unrealistic expectations that others do what I think they should do? I want to exhort us this morning that We would not only go to Christ to be washed and cleansed and served by him, but then we would take up the mind of Christ. And we would say, how can I serve? And then when I have served, how can I keep serving? And by the way, you know where this really comes home to bear is when we do it for people that annoy us. So, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. But if we're honest... There are people that annoy us. I'm sure I annoy some of you. And where this really comes home to bear is when I say I want to serve so-and-so, she really annoys me. I want to serve so-and-so because he really gets under my skin. I know, it's counterintuitive, but Jesus is washing the feet of disciples who are going to deny him and forsake him, and he is washing the feet of one who's going to betray him. Think about that. He is doing this for miserable sinners, and he's doing it physically for his betrayer himself. Now, I want us to consider the betrayer because so much now goes into that. And Jesus is going to delineate. He's going to say, well, this is a spiritual act showing what I'm going to do on my death on the cross for your souls. I'm not doing that for all of you because one of you is a betrayer. One of you is going to turn on me. And, and here's what's interesting, and you need to listen carefully because Judas gets this incredible focus in this section. I heard a minister say this week, I've never heard this, he said there was only one disciple in the room that understood Jesus was talking about his death. There was only one disciple in the room that really understood that Jesus was talking about his death, and that was Judas. Now, why would we conclude that Judas was the only one in the room that understood Jesus was talking about his death in that act? Because Judas had heard what Jesus had been saying. Back in chapter 12, remember Jesus says, the son of man, he said, I must be lifted up. He understood. Jesus was saying he was going to die. And if Jesus dies, there's no earthly kingdom that Judas can get advantage from monetarily. Because remember, Judas loves money. Judas has the money box. All Judas wants is Jesus going to give him something. Jesus is going to make him rich. There are many people that think this today. Judas now understands Jesus is not going to give him earthly riches. He understands that his death means no more money for me. And so at some point, Judas determines, as he is moved and worked on by the evil one, he determines... I can't bear to be with this man anymore. And he decides I will sell him out for whatever they will give me. Isn't that interesting? The responses. Here, Peter doesn't understand, but Jesus is bringing him along, but Judas can't stand to be in the presence of Christ anymore. I thought that was fascinating that sometimes people can hear the most loving declarations. Of Christ, Sometimes they can be presented with the most glorious picture of the Lord Jesus and his humility and his dying love and his service and his sacrifice and everything that he does, and they can say, I cannot stand to be in this man's presence. Um, <clears throat> J.C. Ryle, again, reflecting on this, said this is a grave warning to us. You know, we should ask, when I see the Lord Jesus stooping to wash the filthy feet of his disciples, and I know that he is saying, I want to wash your filthy soul. What is going on inside my heart? Because when we look at Judas, there is a counterfeit there, in the room, in the very presence of Christ, and he can't stand to be in the presence of the Lord any longer. Ryle says this, Let us pray daily that our own Christianity may be genuine, sincere, real, and true. Our faith may be feeble, our hope dim, our knowledge small, our failures frequent, and our faults many. But at all events, let's be real and true. Let us be able to say with poor, weak, erring Peter, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Wow. Um, I'm not going to recount everything we've talked about this morning. I just want to encourage all of us to fix our eyes on this Jesus in this room, doing this act, it's going to culminate in his death on the cross. And let us say, wash me, Savior, or I die. No matter what failures or weaknesses, no matter how feeble your faith may be, may we say with Peter, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And may we look around and say, how can I serve these people who have also been washed, with the same blood I've been washed with, how can I stoop and serve them for their good? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for these truths. Lord, we thank you that you are such a savior that you would take the lowest place to wash. Our filthy souls. We thank you for your death on the cross. We do cry out this morning that you would wash us lest we die. Pray that every man, woman, and boy and girl in this place would do that, Lord, that you would give us grace to do that. We pray that you would also give us that cleansing we need every day from remaining sin, Lord. There's so much. We do pray that you would continue to cleanse us and wash us. We pray this morning also that you would make us a people who want to be like you, Lord Jesus, who want to serve rather than be served. Would you cleanse us of that selfishness that keeps us from doing that? Would you give us love for one another as you have loved us? Would you pray these things for your glory and for our good? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.